This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. What a freaking weekend in sports. How we doing? Evan Roberts podcast, a special edition of the Evan Roberts podcast, because on Monday afternoon, the Yankees are playing a makeup game against the Minnesota Twins at two o'clock. So the Carton and Roberts show will be very, very, very abbreviated. We'll be on after Yankees Twins. So I figured, let me get it all out of my system before the abbreviated show. We had the New York Jets opening the 2021 season. We had the New York Giants opening the 2021 season. And we had a wildly entertaining, controversial, and crazy subway series between the Mets and the Yankees. We'll get to all of it. Let me start with the Giants because I I think your biggest fear, the fear as Giant fans that nothing would change, and that was your fear. At least for one week, and I get it, there's 16 more of these. At least for one week, that nightmare existed. Because everything that you had watched over the last few years, everything that you needed to have fixed over the last few years, reared its ugly head week one. Now, one thing Joe Judge said after the game, and I understand this, and sometimes it's very difficult to do this as New York sports fans or any kind of sports fans, is to take a step back and remember it's only one game. So are the New York Giants dead because they lost to the Denver Broncos at home by two touchdowns? No. Could they come back, beat Washington Washington on Thursday, and get their season straightened out? Of course. And look, I don't know how good the Philadelphia Eagles are, as good as they looked in week one, and obviously Dallas and Washington began the season 0-1. But the biggest concern of your Giant fan is not the yell. It's how it happened. It's the fact that you got your traditional Daniel Jones brutal turnover. And by the way, it was a freaking brutal turnover. Because after Denver goes up 17-7 mid-third quarter and your offense has barely seen the field, it was important as ever for the Giants to march down the field and respond. Even if it's three points. Even if it's a field goal. That drive at the halfway point of the third quarter after Denver had methodically marched down the field, converted on a bunch of third downs, converted on the fourth and one from the four for the Oku Bonin touchdown. I can't pronounce his name. I I could try, but the kid obviously made a big impact. They needed to respond. And what's crazy is they did. Third and six, Sterling Shepard first down. Third and eight, Sterling Shepard first down. Third and short, hey, we got Saquon Barkley. Let's hand him the football. Boom, first down. You are set up with first down from the Denver 22. Not quite a red zone situation, but basically it is. And what do we get? What does the Giant fan get right at the beginning of the season? The thing you fear. The thing 
that has kept you questioning if Daniel Jones can be a franchise quarterback. That absolutely brutal, kick-yourself-in-the-balls turnover. And that's what you got. And right there, that moment, that's the damn football game. I understand they had a fourth down and goal with like seven minutes to go. All right, score there. It's one possession game. And they failed on the fourth and goal from the six. Great play, great play by Fuller on Galladay. But no, no, no. The game ended when Daniel Jones put the ball on the ground. And then, oh, by the way, Denver marched down the field and scored three out of it. And I'll get to the defense in a second. But the Daniel Jones turnover. There you go. On full display. Now. The other obvious thing that haunted you, the offensive line. Two years ago, when Nate Solder was having a brutal season at left tackle and looking like one of the biggest bust-free agent signings you could have, the New York Giants looked as if they were sort of moving on when they drafted Andrew Thomas. Nate Solder opts out of last year, totally understandable. And still, as a Giant fan, you're thinking, I don't know if this offensive line is fixed, but I'm probably not going to have to see Nate Solder again. The only way Nate Solder was going to come back is if he took a pay cut. Well, Nate Solder took a pay cut. And there you are, Giant fans, watching probably the highlight that's going to get the most attention from this week, and that's Nate Solder just being completely run over at right tackle in his inability to protect Daniel Jones. So the thing, again, that has sucked for the Giants for a decade now going all the way back to the Jerry Reese days, the thing that could derail this season reared its ugly head. Protection. And here's the problem. There are things from this game that I believe the Giants will clean up. For example, the chemistry between Kenny Gowding and Daniel Jones will only get better. Saquon Barkley, who didn't have that many touches in this game, I think he ended up with... He had 10 rushes and how many catches in this game? One catch. So he had 11 touches in this game. So on the low end, which I don't think is surprising, especially considering they play Thursday night, but Saquon Barkley will get better. The two biggest offensive weapons on this team, and, you know, for Carton's sake, since he loves Evan Ingram, and Evan Ingram's going to come back. So the weapons on offense that sort of underperformed week one should get better. But the two things I'm not convinced they're going to get better are the two things that have scared Giant fans for years now. A crappy offensive line and a quarterback that has the ability to make the biggest, dumbest mistake in the worst possible situation. Now, as far as the defense is concerned, look, the knock on the defense today was their inability to get off the field. And that really happened from the beginning of this game on. Going all the way back to Denver's second drive in which they kicked the McManus field goal. They just had a really tough time stopping them on third down and subsequently fourth down. Remember that spot where Vic Fangio, and give him a lot of credit for doing this, says fourth and seven from the giant 37-yard line in a 0-0 game. F it, I'm going for it. I loved it. Showed a lot of balls. And it worked. Tim Patrick made that big play. So defensively, the biggest rip is, and there was that other fourth down from midfield, uh, I think it was late second quarter, right before Denver scored the touchdown that put them up 10-7. Fangio showed balls. And then going for it again on fourth and one from the four-yard line. The giant defense couldn't get off the field. And then it started to add up, and they looked gassed because they were on the field most of the day. 
Defense forces that big turnover by Logan Ryan, who's great when he's on the field. He missed a little bit of time due to injury, and it didn't turn into anything because the Giants had terrible field position and went three and out. So defensively, the biggest rip you can have was not being able to get that monster stop to get their asses off the field. And it ended up backfiring on them because you could see it in the second half of this game. This was a winded defense. And then you got the coach. Now, look, this loss is not on Joe Judge, clearly. But here's what's happening, and it's starting right now. The honeymoon's over. It's done. Because when Joe Judge took over, and this is what Robert Sala's going to get right now, and I'll get to the Jets in a bit. That is, hey, he's not Pat Shermer. Hey, he's not Ben McAdoo. He's competent. I trust him. And in year one of Joe Judge, the Giants played tons of close games. Right out of the gate, they're playing a close game against a team that was better than them last year in the Pittsburgh Steelers. And so the bar was a lot lower for Joe. Well, this is a year where they got to win. And here are the two things that jump out at you. Number one is the obvious. They lost. They lost at home to a Denver team that won five games last year. Are the Broncos better than that five-win team, especially with Teddy Bridgewater, at quarterback? By the way, how good is he? He's one of the more underrated quarterbacks in this league. He is a starter in this league. He is not a bridge, in my opinion. I think with, obviously, any talent around you, and he does when you look at all the weapons at wide receiver. Unfortunately, Jerry Judy got hurt in this game. The weapons at tight end, you saw him and Noah Font kind of developing chemistry. And the running game is pretty good with the rookie Williams and obviously Melvin Gordon. Teddy can play. There's no doubt in my mind. I'm not saying he's a franchise quarterback, but he's a starting quarterback in this league. So despite, yes, an improvement of quarterback, a team that comes into the season healthier. We saw Von Miller out there after missing all last year. Can't lose this game. So number one, you're going to judge Joe Judge, no pun intended, on wins and losses. And by the way, this wasn't a close game. That, that's the other problem. I mean, was it close for part of the game? Sure, but in the latter part of the third quarter, this game was over. That's why Sterling Shepard's talking about the fact that the place is empty by the time the game ends and also how filled it was with Denver Bronco fans. That was the other problem. The other thing is, and if you want to call this a nitpick, I totally get it. I totally get you saying, Evan, don't make a big deal out of this. That's fine but I'm going to make a big deal out of it. And that is Joe Judge throwing a challenge flag on the touchdown by Okobanen. Now, I wanted to see what Joe said after the game because it cost the Giants a timeout. Now, why? Of course it cost them a timeout. You're not allowed to challenge a scoring play. This is not a new rule. This is not a new wrinkle to replay. It's been going on for a while, even though every broadcaster in the world makes the same freaking mistake. Oh, I think he threw a challenge flag. Oh, he should challenge this. You can't challenge a scoring play. I don't really care if Adam Amin gets it wrong. It's okay. Or Joe Buck gets it wrong. The coach can't get it wrong. Because when the coach gets it wrong, he gets charged a timeout. Now, did that cost the Giants in this game? It didn't cost them because they got their ass kicked. If they score on fourth and goal from the six with about six and a half minutes to go in the fourth quarter and make it a 20-14 to 14 game, then yeah, the timeout turns out to be a big deal. If Melvin Gordon doesn't go 70 effing yards for a touchdown, then yeah, maybe that lack of timeout's a big deal. But what I didn't love was Joe Judge after the game because he's asked a very fair question, what the hell happened? Now, why are you throwing a challenge flag and costing yourself a timeout? And in one breath, he says, I messed up, which I... I appreciate. It's 
one of the things I got on Luis Rojas about. It's okay to mess up as long as you own it. But then he went on and on about, well, you know, I was trying to get their attention. They're supposed to communicate with me. Get their attention by sprinting on the field. <laughs> I'd be less annoyed if they took a timeout, for, timeout away for that than throwing a flag. Is the flag really going to get their attention? It's going to get their attention for them to take a timeout away from you. That's where it's going to get the attention. But look, the truth is that's not what cost him the game. What cost him the game was what has cost the Giants games for years now. A subpar offensive line, a quarterback that makes brain-dead mistakes, and a defense which is good but had a really tough time consistently getting off the field on Sunday. Good job by Sterling Shepard, not only for his comments after the game, talking about how much they owe the fans, but he was probably one of their best players on the field, especially on offense. The good news is Saquon's healthy. The good news is Saquon will only get better. Same thing with Kenny Galladay. That is one thing, and I know it's an excuse to say they need time to play together, and we knew that was already going to be a built-in excuse. I'm not using it as an excuse because they lost for many, many reasons, but that is a positive for this team as this season goes on. The weapons on offense. Saquon Barkley will be healthier, you would think, and will have those home run balls like Melvin Gordon's 70-yard run. That may be Saquon soon. The key now is this. They got to find a way to win Thursday. That's the key. Because, look, I'm not going to bury their season at 0-2, especially when you look at Atlanta the following week, a very winnable game, especially considering how garbage they looked against the Philadelphia Eagles. But it would cleanse the palate, especially against a talented defense like Washington, who now is going to have to play Heineke instead of Fitzpatrick, which I think is an upgrade for them. Long term, it's an upgrade for them. They got to wipe this away and win. Because this is no longer a season of feel-good. This is no longer a season of I'm-seeing-progress. This is a season of winning. Joe Judge also said after the game, it's about getting better week after week. Sure it is. But it's also about winning. This franchise has won nothing for years. When you go out and you bring in Kenny Galladay and you're in year three of a quarterback, it is about winning. And on Sunday, in your own freaking building against a team that's a borderline playoff team at best, you got your ass kicked. Now, the Jets. I spoke to Joe yesterday, and I was curious his feeling going into this, if he was as negative as I was. And and I want to make something clear about my negativity. My negativity is not around where this franchise is going. It's around the results. And it's very different than the discussion we just had about the Giants. The Giants are about winning. It's about winning. It's about winning. I just did a whole tirade about that. As much as I want it to be about winning, as much as a Jet fan as I am that would love to see them shock the world and win a bunch of games and be in a playoff race, that was never, ever realistic. So I go into this game, A, excited about the season, but B, trying to keep my expectations in check. And I will admit this. The first half of the game depressed me in a major, major way. Number one, the offensive line, which that, that's really the headline coming out of week one. But let's just stick with the first half, and then we'll get to the second half and the overall view of this team. This game starts off in the worst possible way. I got Tevin Coleman getting shut down on third and one. I got Makai Beckton being called for false starts. I've got a sack in which the defensive end comes in completely unblocked, and that's just all on your first drive. 
The positive was defensively, they played well. Those corners, which are extremely young, actually covered halfway well. The problem was the offensive line was forcing young Zach Wilson to run for his life. They got a huge break on that botched handoff on fourth and one from the four-yard line. But it was very tough to look past the fact that offensively, Zach Wilson had no shot. No shot. Now, he also threw an awful, awful interception, which is going to happen. He's a rookie quarterback. But it was very difficult to find a lot of positives out of the first half. You're watching Robbie Anderson run free for a 57-yard touchdown. You're watching Sam Darnold on a quarterback keeper, which I don't think Adam Gates ever ran enough with Sam running for a touchdown. And you're down 16-0. Sam threw for more yards in the first half than in any game last year total, except for one. And it was just a very depressing 15 minutes at halftime. Zach's running for his life with no chance to succeed. The running game can't get going because their line can't open up any holes. And Sam made a couple of plays. And before you say anything about Sam and say, well, he's got Christian McCaffrey. That's why Sam looked as good as he looked. Look how reliant he was on McCaffrey in this game. Yeah? So what? That was a part of why Sam's in a great situation and he's going to succeed. He's got more weapons on offense. He has a competent coaching staff. So that, that, that ain't any excuse. And look, watching Robbie Anderson run free in which he beat that zone and split the safeties was depressing. It's okay to admit that. And I want to make it clear. I agree with the Jets moving on. But it is still allowed to watch Sam Darnold beating Robbie Anderson and say, boy, that's depressing. That sucks. And you know what also sucks? And it's so late to complain about this, but it's true sitting there yesterday afternoon. Why they had to schedule Sam Darnold and the Panthers against the Jets right out of the gate. Like if Sam is doing this to the Atlanta Falcons or any other team, I'd shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, I expected it. But to watch Sam Darnold rush for a touchdown and throw a 70 or 57-yard bomb to Robbie Anderson on the first half was very depressing. But again, despite that, I thought the defense held up well. They didn't miss a lot of tackles in this game. And then in the second half of this game, the defense was outstanding again. They forced a three and out. I thought John Franklin Myers was all over the place. He had that sack of Sam, which was pretty impressive. And then offensively, and it really didn't start till that third drive. We got to see the potential of Zach Wilson. And he did it with the pressure still in his face. And he was taking a licking in this game. And he never seemed overly phased. The problem was on the best moment from Zach. And that's always when he's improvising. Always when he's on the run and he makes that great throw to Corey Davis to make it a 16-8 game because they went for two. The depressing part is we see Makai Becton go down. And this is always the biggest fear with Makai. When he's on the field, for the most part, for the most part, not necessarily yesterday, because I think the offensive line actually played better once Becton was out and George Fant moved to the left side and Morgan Moses was at right tackle, but whatever, I'm not burying Becton. Just a fair observation, I think. But the question with Makai is staying on the field. Now, it sounds like the injury is not as bad as maybe we feared. But that sequence right there, Zach converting on a third down to Ryan Griffin, and then Zach making that great, great play on the run to his buddy, Corey Davis, that was awesome. That was awesome. 
Now, I was a little frustrated when the defense couldn't get off the field on third down and Carolina was able to tack on the field goal. But we saw, and I think this is why I actually walked away with more of a positive feeling than I thought. We saw the potential of Zach Wilson. Because I think it was two drives later. Again, they're marching down the field. He makes a big conversion on fourth down of Braxton Berrios. Throws another touchdown pass to Zach Wilson. And he's doing it while still facing pressure. It's not as if the Jet offensive line cleaned itself up. Zach Wilson, despite being hit how many times in this game and taking a licking, kept going. And what really, I mean, sucked is probably the word, but was also really disappointing is when they give the ball back to Carolina, they try the onside kick with Matt Amendola, which is another story in this game. Kid's making his NFL debut, and he's forced to punt all day uh, because of the injury to Braden Mann. I was really hoping, win, lose, or draw, Zach got one more crack at it. And unfortunately, Christian McCaffrey made that big run on second down, and that was it. But there was enough positives from Zach and positives from the defense. I, I got to say, their defense, I thought, held up pretty good. Now, maybe it's because my expectations were so low because of the amount of youth they have in their secondary. But they made plays. Michael Carter in the secondary. Javelon Guidry made some plays. Like, it wasn't bad. Bryce Hall made some plays. It, it wasn't bad. It wasn't as bad as at least I thought. And again, maybe that's on me. You know, maybe the fact that my bar was so freaking low. John Franklin Myers made some plays. But I walked away from this game thinking, okay, all right, okay. Now, I don't know what Craig's going to say because he's the one who is walking around saying they're going to win 10 games. This is not a 10-win team, but you are looking, and it's very similar to what the Giants went through last year. You're just looking for progress. It's a very different point of season and franchise history where the Jets are than when the Giants are. There will be a time where the Jets will be about winning again. I I can't wait for that time. Unfortunately, now is not the time. And look, it's tough going into an NFL season and having that kind of attitude, but I got to be honest. If I came here screaming and yelling, you know, same old Jets, I'd be lying to you. Were there moments in this game in which I was deeply frustrated? Of course, we all are. I think as fans, we're always competitive, but taking a step back, I have some positives moving away from this. Now, the biggest concern is this line's got to be cleaned up. No doubt about it. You can't have Zach Wilson running for his life all season long. Otherwise, he won't get through the season. And that is my biggest fear. No one in the world wants to see Mike White at quarterback. We need Zach Wilson for 17 games. We need it. We didn't get that from Sam the last couple of years. So all in all, I saw some positives and I felt good, especially in the second half. The first half, if you bottled it, if I did a podcast in the middle of uh, the break between the first and second half, I would have sounded a little bit different. But overall, there were some positive things to take out of this. And result, though, is that we live in a world in which the, in which the New York Jets are 0-1 and the New York Giants are 0-1. We also had a Subway series over the weekend. And outside of the first game, which... Was great if you're a Met fan because they blew the Yankees out. We got two of the most entertaining Subway Series games you will ever see. Let me go to Saturday night, uh, and before I get to the game, the ceremonies were they were as good as it gets. It was very very sad. There were a lot of tears flowing, but I thought the Mets and the Yankees did an excellent job doing their best 
to honor the heroes from September 11th, 2001. And once the game started, it was, I got to be honest, it was weird because I think there was still so much emotion from not only the ceremonies, but throughout the day. I thought President Bush gave one of the best speeches of his life uh, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. But everything about what the Yankees and Mets did before the game Saturday night, they hit the right note. Both teams coming together. New York as one, though on Sunday night they came together, but that's a little bit different. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And then you had a baseball game in which so much controversy would begin, and we didn't know it. Taiwan Walker says, I'm going to throw batting practice in the second inning. The Yankees make it 5 nothing. Met fans are saying, boy, this is going to be a very quick night. And in the Mets credits, their bats respond. And they attack Corey Kluber. And all of a sudden, we got this high-scoring affair. Mets take the lead, and then we go to the eighth inning. Now, I got into a little bit of a back-and-forth with some Met fans on Twitter, and maybe my initial tweet about Rojas pulling Seth Lugo was too harsh, and I'll own that. But I stand by what I said on Twitter, and that was keeping Seth in this game. So if you recall, the Mets have a lead. All right, They're up by two at this time. And Seth Lugo pitches the seventh inning and pitches a 1-2-3 inning in which he throws seven pitches. We now go to the top of the eighth inning. Because Seth only threw seven pitches, I was a big fan of keeping Seth in the game. Now, one of the big pushbacks to me was, wait, Seth hasn't done this this year. When he has pitched the second inning, he has not pitched well. All that's true. All that is fair. But it is now September, middle of September. And every game is a big freaking deal. And I don't necessarily think you manage the exact same way in the middle of September as you would in the middle of June or July. Earlier in the day, Kenley Jansen, actually, I think it was that night, so I shouldn't say earlier in the day, but that night, Kenley Jansen, elite level closer, at least he has been recently, and throughout his career, he's been up and down, but overall, he's had a great career, pitched for the third straight day. It was the first time he had done it all year. Why, you ask? Why did Kenley Jansen pitch for a third straight day? Because it's September. Because the games matter. Because you try things a little bit differently. So look, if Seth Lugo gives up a leadoff hit to Brett Gardner in the eighth inning, do I take him out immediately? Yeah, sure. Then I go to Trevor May. Then I go to potentially Aaron Loop. And instead, he pulled Lugo out immediately. Where I will own my own apology, if you will, is the way I tweeted it was, what lame excuse is Luis going to have? Is he going to cite up and downs? Like, well, what garbage is he going to give us? I don't think it was the most egregious thing in the world. That's where I'll walk it back. I still would have allowed Lugo to start the eighth. There are more egregious things Luis has done, will do, and has done. But then you get the Trevor May implosion. Aaron Judge, who just owns City Field and owns the Mets, hits that two-run bomb. And I don't know why... I just had a feeling that it wasn't over, even after the Yankees took the lead. And in the bottom of the eighth inning, Pete Alonzo, and this this one stung, I have to admit as a Met fan, hit an absolute crap out of the ball with first and second and two out. And off the bat, I thought, here's Pete Alonzo's moment. I mean, he's had plenty of moments as a Met, but September 11th, back and forth game, this is going to be some kind of moment. And it nestled into the glove of Brett Gardner the way Mike Piazza's bomb nestled into the glove of Bernie Williams to end the 2000 World Series. 
And then they had a chance against Aroldis Chapman, and he's shaky. And Judge makes that great play in right field, robbing Javier Baez. And then J.D. Davis comes up with a big double. And, and I'll give you a first guess that never came to fruition. And maybe Yankee fans will agree with me on this. Down a run, runner on second, two outs. The batter, or runner on third, two outs. Batter's James McCann. The on-deck hitter was either going to be Patrick Mazika or Albert Almora. McCann in this game had already hit an RBI triple and a two-run home run. If I'm Aaron Boone, I'm not facing James McCann. And he's behind him 2-0. Now, this is a non-story because McCann flies out. But if James McCann ties the game or, dare I say, hits a walk-off, that would be an egregious Aaron Boone mistake. So I want to put it out there because I did think it at the time, and I was happy, even though it didn't work out, that Boone didn't walk McCann with Mazika or Almora waiting on deck. It was a brutal loss for the Mets, but it was also maybe the most necessary win the Yankees have had all year. And I tweeted this right before Chapman came in. I thought it was the most important inning a role Chapman has thrown since the playoffs last year. Especially at looking at the landscape of the American League East, the Blue Jays putting a bludgeoning, bludgeoning, whatever, on the Orioles. I think the Red Sox had just won their game. That was so essential for Chapman to stop the bleeding and save that game in the ninth inning, and he did. And it was an incredible back-and-forth game. By the way, I'll give you a Beningo critique as I was talking to him yesterday. I didn't feel this way, so this is strictly a Joe thing. But I want to put it out there because I thought it was interesting. He made me think. He wouldn't have pinch hit for Taiwan Walker in the sixth inning. Mets had just taken the lead on the McCann home run. Walker was dominating everybody. He would have kept them in. Now, Ty's pitch count was over 100, so I don't think that was ever realistic. Bottom of the order was coming up in the seventh inning. So Joe was on the side of, why am I taking this guy out? He's retired 13 in a row. And that leads us to Taiwan Walker's performance. I I don't know if this had come out yet or I had buried my head in the sand as soon as that game was over and then engulfed myself in football. But Taiwan Walker obviously had one horrible inning in which he allowed three home runs. He was absolutely brutal. So it comes out on the broadcast Sunday night. It was the one game I didn't go to of this Subway Series. I went Friday, I went Saturday. That the Mets thought, Jonathan Villar thought, the Yankees were whistling the signs to the hitters that inning because Taiwan Walker was tipping his pitches. And as they tell that story, we see Francisco Lindor hit his second home run of the game and then taunt the Yankees and clearly show his displeasure with the whistling from the night before. Now, we don't have every single detail of what actually happened on Saturday night, but I'll give you my view just based on the facts that we have. If Taiwan Walker is tipping his pitches and the Yankees are noticing that, and so they're then communicating that to the batter, and a lot of times that doesn't happen, I think that when a pitcher is tipping their pitches, the batter knows. So the batter doesn't need any signal. They can see based on what the pitcher is doing hey, this is about to be a fastball. So usually when guys tip their pitches, which happens a lot, it's a frequent thing or it's a frequent excuse, we don't need you know, voice signals going from player to player. Now, guy on second base, base runner, may signal something to a batter when a pitch is tipped. But we usually don't hear any kind of whistling or sounds. I, I hate to be on the Yankee side here, but what, what did they do wrong? Now, I love the fact the Mets showed fight. I do. 
I love the fact that Lindor was a tough guy. Great. My guy, my team, go ahead. You want to fight Giancarlo? Go fight Giancarlo. I loved it. I'd rather them fight opponents than us. That's my attitude on it. Go fight Giancarlo. Don't fight Billy in section 211. You know what I mean? But if Ty is tipping his pitches and the Yankees are taking advantage of it, I don't think they've done anything wrong. I saw one guy on Twitter saying, what's the difference between this and the Astros? What's the difference? Is that a serious question? The Astros use cameras. The Yankees would be taking advantage of the fact that Taiwan Walker's tipping his pitches. It's a completely different stratosphere. And I don't think the Mets or Yankees really offered a conclusion to this other than Lindor saying, oh, I think they were whistling. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure. Whatever he said. If Taiwan Walker's tipping his pitches and the Yankees notice it, I don't see any problem. I got it. I mean, what am I missing here? Like, what, what did they do wrong? Now, sometimes, and this is where I fall on this, who's right and who's wrong? I'll give you my view on it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. I want whatever works for my team. And it worked last night. And I have made this comment, and I hope I'm wrong. I repeated this comment to Joe on the phone the other day. I've said it on the air that I don't believe Francisco Lindor can handle New York. And I also believe in owning what you say. And I also don't say anything for effect. I say it because I believe it. And the reason I felt that way is not only because of his failures this year, but I hated the fact that he lays down a bunt in his first plate appearance after apologizing to fans with a runner on second and nobody out in the first inning. May seem like a minor thing, just telling you how I felt. Francisco Lindor had a night like, night like last night that makes me question everything I ever thought about. Now you want to tell me, ah, there's still a 500 team, it's only one game, I get it. It's how it happened. It's not just three home runs against the New York Yankees. It's how he hit the three home runs. It's the fact that after he hits the second home run, which is amazing enough, and he's talking trash, and then Giancarlo hits a home run, and he's talking trash, that he comes up a inning later and hits another home run. It really was an epic, epic night for Francisco. He's got to build off of it, obviously. But he has a really good chance. This has a really good chance of being one of those epic moments we look back on. And what's funny about it, and I wish I went to the game last night. It was just too much going Friday, Saturday, all the football yesterday. But I hear Matt Vaskirjian say something so stupid. But it may turn out to be true, even though he didn't mean it. When Lindor hit the home run in the second, he said, this is Francisco Lindor's moment as a Met. And my wife heard it and said, is that true? And I said, no. The guys had game-winning hits. He got the Grama victory in Colorado earlier this year. He bailed the Mets out when they blew a 9-0 game. You're telling me a home run in the second inning is a moment? No. But he ended up having one. <laughs> you know? Now, I guess it was a moment because that's a part of the moment because he hits another one in the sixth and obviously the game winner in the eighth. So from that perspective, I guess Vaskirjian was right. And who could forget the Edwin Diaz roller coaster? I'm stunned he got out of it. I'm stunned after he walks Anthony Rizzo on four pitches. He gets Aaron, uh, not Aaron Judge. And I did that on purpose because it should have been Aaron Judge. Poor guy was feeling dizzy had to come out of the game. So instead, it's Brett Gardner who replaces Aaron Judge, strikes out twice, bounces into a double play. 
Could have been a different game of judges out there. And then obviously Stanton popping up the shortstop, which perfect irony, perfect conclusion, Stanton popping up to Lindor. So it turned out to be an incredible victory for the Mets. I don't know where it goes. The wild card, though, is starting to become much more of a possibility than the division. But they got to win every day. They're playing the St. Louis Cardinals. These are huge games coming up. The Cardinals are ahead of them by a couple of games. They got to beat them. But with the Padres schedule and the Padres struggles and now Blake Snell hurt, they seem to be collapsing. The Cincinnati Reds are probably the biggest focus as far as the team most likely to get the second wild card spot. And then you got the Cardinals and the Phillies, two teams the Mets are about to face. So are they in it? Sure. Do I think they're going to make the playoffs? No. But that was an incredible game Sunday. As far as the Yankees are concerned, it's full panic mode. They Here's a problem right now with the Yankees. And you saw it last night. They don't have pitching in their bullpen. Chad Green, pound for pound, is I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I guess I would question who do you trust more? He's still your best reliever. Is it a Roldis Chapman now again? Okay. Is it Lucas Litke? Is it Wandy Peralta? Is it Clay Holmes? They don't have anybody they can trust in that bullpen. That's the problem. Now, I was stunned by Andrew Haney. Give him credit. Got out of a bases loaded one-out jam with only one run scoring. But here's Chad Green, who has this amazing propensity for giving up the brutal home run, which he did again last night to Lindor. They don't have any arms. And so as we go into this stretch where the Yankees play Minnesota and Baltimore and Cleveland, teams they are clearly better than and teams they should be able to beat, You look at this bullpen, once a pillar of the New York Yankees, and you say, where are they going to get the outs from? And they don't have a rotation built outside of Garrett Cole to go deep into games. Jordan Montgomery is not going deep into games. Luis Heal is not going deep into games. Corey Kluber is not going to go deep into games. Nestor Cortez may be able to go deep into games. So this has been... And look, I've watched baseball my whole life. I don't remember a team winning 13 in a row and then playing as awful as they have to respond to that. Now, they're still right there. We understand that. They are still, everything is still in front of them in the wild card race. But the Blue Jays don't lose, though they will start playing Tampa. And the Yankees have to put together a winning streak. But this should have been, this could have been a sweep. I mean, the Yankees could have lost all three games to the Mets. But you look at this roster and you look at their arms, right now, they just don't have them. Anyhow, Craig and I will spend a hell of a lot more time on the Lindor-Stanton thing and, of course, all the football from week one in the National Football League. But I wanted to get a little bit of that out of my system, a little special Monday podcast-exclusive sports talk show. Craig and I will be on after the Yankees-Twins game, and then throughout the week we'll be on at a regularly scheduled time at 2 o'clock. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast.